Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. Seek to show hospitality. That's where we're going to focus our time this morning. Four questions. When should we practice Christian hospitality? How do we know if we're doing it? How do we grow in it? And what's required of us to be the kind of church that doesn't just demonstrate episodic hospitality, but demonstrates a kind of lifestyle, a practice that begins to characterize our church over time? What's required of us to do that? First, when should we practice hospitality? Hospitality to wayfarers and travelers and strangers was one of the chief qualities in the ancient world. Homer divided humanity into two groups, the savage and the hospitable. Aristotle said it was among the chief of the virtues. We see this reflected in Job in his own life when he said in verse 30, uh, 32 of chapter 31 of the book of Job, the sojourner did not lodge in the street. I open my door to the traveler. We see this reflected in the Old Testament with Abraham when he welcomed the guests in Genesis 18. In the ancient world and in the Old Testament, hospitality was a social necessity because there were not inns like we have today. We were the inn for the wayfarer and the stranger. And so when you come to the New Testament, we see that the ante is raised in its view of hospitality. It is transformed and it's deepened by the gospel. You can just think about the way that the New Testament speaks about hospitality, not just in Romans 12, 13, but think about 1 Peter 4, 9, where Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Or the author of Hebrews says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers because in so doing you have entertained, some of you, angels unaware. Or for those of you who are praying about who you're going to nominate to be an elder or a deacon at Trinity, think through this one. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, it says, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, and hospitable. Or in Titus chapter 1, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. But what should he be? Very first word, hospitable. Paul uses this Greek word, diokontes, which means to seek, to show hospitality. It means to pursue. It means to strive for. It means to be calculated in your strategic initiative to seek to show hospitality to other people. The NIV says to practice hospitality, but the Greek is actually stronger. It says you have great intention. You're seeking it out. You're pressing forward in hospitality toward other people. It means that it is not just something you do serially or episodically. It is something that is to characterize the whole of your life as a Christian. 
If we were to translate this word, we might say it means to continuously work very hard, Trinity, at practicing hospitality. That's what diakontes means, to push into it, to pursue it, to continually practice it. Well, how do we know if we're doing it? If that's what it means, if it means when we are doing it, we should always be doing it. It should become a lifestyle. It should become a default mode, a default mode of how we do life. How do we know if we are doing it? And the word for hospitality in the Greek is philoxenia, which literally means the love of inviting strangers. Xenia is the term to invite a stranger. You can think about the English word that you may know with xeno in it, xenophobic, which means phobic fear, a fear of strangers, a fear of the other. Xenia means to invite a stranger, to invite an other to invite a guest. And so here this word is philoxenia. It is the love of inviting people into your home. You can see the terms when you think about Lydia in Acts 16 when she invited her new brothers and sisters into her home after she, after she was converted. Or you see it in John when he says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing that you do in all of your efforts to these brothers, strangers though they are, to testify of your love before the church. And you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Christians are people who are philoxenic, not xenophobic. We love to invite the stranger into our home. But how do we know if we're really doing that? There are all kinds of alternative hospitalities that we think of as Western Americans. There are all kinds of things that pass as hospitality that really aren't Christian or biblical hospitality. Let me just share a couple of them with you. Sentimental hospitality. This is the kind of hospitality that's all dressed up in nice manners. It passes off as being very hospitable. Well, it's actually not hospitable at all. Flannery O'Connor has a, a wonderful short story that some of you have read called A Good Man is Hard to Find. And the main, one of the main characters in the story is a grandmother who gets all dressed up to go on a road trip with her family just in case she has someone to be nice to. And she's traveling along this road and, and she finds that they end up having car trouble and that there are some mis, there's a misfit, there are some bad men who come to help them with their car. And she is incredibly sweet and kind. And then when she realizes it's in the face of utter terror of what's about to happen to them, her hospitality changes from sentimentality to a real and true hospitality. And she looks to this person who came to help them fix their car and realize that they are not a nice person. And in the face of that kind of terror, all of her sentimentality left, and she began to genuinely, be, genuinely love and be hospitable to this person. And it shocked him. Sentiment does not go well with Parkland, Florida. And it's only in the face of gross and monstrous evil that all of our sentimentality gets thrown out the window. It is, biblical hospitality is not just mere sentiment. Nor is it privatized hospitality, like the Red Book or Ladies' Home Journal or Southern Living or some of these books that we read. That, that is not hospitality. That is what's called entertainment in our homes. Where we invite people into our homes and we make them a very delicious meal. Yes, that is often part and parcel of what hospitality means, but that is not in itself being hospitable. 
Because we all know what it's like to bring people into our homes where they can see our things and they can enjoy our meals and our skill and they can enjoy our company. That is entertainment. It is inviting people over to be entertained by the beauty of your home or the company of the people that reside in it. Hospitality also doesn't mean cruise ship or Disney World hospitality like we think of the hospitality industry. There's an entire world out there that has changed our minds about hospitality because they are marketing hospitality. And if you've ever been on a cruise, you see this in such stark contrast because you don't meet any of the crew of that ship except just those people who are trained in being hospitable. The cruise director, maybe the captain. In fact, if you've ever worked for a cruise line, you know that you can't interact with the clients or the customers at all until the very last night when everybody comes out who's part of the crew and they get on the stage and they sing a song about how we become one happy family over the week. That is not hospitality. It's kind of a Disneyland cruise ship mentality that gives you the impression within the hospitality industry that you're genuinely being cared for when actually they're thinking in terms of customer service and of contract sales. Christian hospitality also isn't inclusivity. Many college campuses these days are all about inclusivity. And that in itself is not a bad thing to be. They'll say it like this. They'll say diversity. In in one college I know, the administrator told me that their inside-the-door tagline is diversity for diversity's sake. The end is diversity, not education. (laughs) The end for them is diversity. We want to have a well-represented, diverse student body because that's how you market the college. But hospitality is not inclusivity. But didn't Jesus accept people who were different than he was? Didn't Jesus include everybody? Well, certainly, yes. He included the sinner and the outcast and the tax collector. Yes, he did. But have you ever thought about what he said to the woman who was caught in adultery? He didn't just say, oh, yes, I accept you as you are. No, Jesus says, yes, I accept you, but go and sin no more. Even Jesus, the most hospitable human being ever to live, had conditions upon his hospitality. It was not an exclusivity without conditions. It was an, ex- an in- sorry, it's not an inclusivity without conditions. It was an inclusivity that said yes. But go and become what you are called to be in light of who your creator made you or who he has called you in a relationship with him to be. One commentator said that in the second half of the second century, it's an old story about Lucian of Samosota, who was a satirist and who was, he was kind of like the Trevor Noah, the Seth Meyers of the day. He was writing to a man named Cronius, and he said that the relationship among Christians is very unusual. They regard one another as brothers. Their founder persuaded them that they should be like brothers to one another, and therefore they despise all things equally, and they view them as common property. They share their things together. They welcome them in their heartache and trouble. They care for their soul in ways that we do not. And Lucian's remark that for an educated populace in the second century, they were Frankly, they were unprepared for the unsentimental notion of hospitality that the Christians brought to the public square. The 
the New Testament assumes that this ancient concept of hospitality is not just loving or putting up travelers. It begins there, but it becomes so much more all-encompassing. Peter tells us to practice hospitalities to everyone in our community. 1 Peter 4, 9. That is, they were to bring one another into their living space, into their common life, to share their food, their warmth, their rest, their life, their family, their nurture with one another. And we, with deep, deep roots in the Enlightenment, have tended to separate our life into the public and to the private. And so even those of us who really enjoy hospitality, we have to fight, I have to fight the temptation to have a kind of privatized hospitality where I invite people over, but I have to be careful that it's not entertainment, that it's a genuine sitting together, thinking about things from their perspective, really having a relationship that's beginning to grow and to develop and leaving space for that relationship to take shape. When should we practice it? It should be a continual practice of our church. How do we know we're practicing it? We know we're practicing it when we're caring for the whole person. We're not just putting them up for the night, although we should do that, but we're beginning to care for the whole person. We're getting to know them. We're sharing our things with them. We are moving away from this kind of marketing contractual agreement for hospitality, and we're beginning to really grow together. How do we grow in it? I think there are four ways. The New Testament shows that hospitality is an attitude. It's also an action. The first way is that you have to recognize that it is an attitude of individual Christians toward other individuals. Philoxenia. It's a strong word. It means to delight in other people, inviting them into your home delighting in them, sharing your things. But it's hard, frankly, for us to do that if we are so possessive of what the Lord has given us to be stewards of. 1 Peter 4.9 says for us to do so ungrudgingly. Genesis 18.5 says the goal of giving hospitality to one another is to refresh and to encourage other people. Hospitality is done well when it is generous, it's uncomplaining, it's loving, it's refreshing. It doesn't make the guests feel like guests. It genuinely makes them feel like they're part of the family. You have to recognize that it is a call for individuals toward other individuals. You also have to recognize that it is an attitude of the Christian community toward the excluded of the world. We must not think of hospitality only in terms of individual terms, but we must also think of it in terms of corporate terms. Luke particularly stresses this notion of hospitality when he welcomes those who are usually unwelcomed by the world. In Luke 14, 12 through 24, he says, Jesus tells a parable of a man who has this great banquet in his home, and he goes and he finds the people, the expected guests, the respectable, the money, those who buy the fields or the livestock, and they're the ones who refuse to come. And so then Jesus goes to the unexpected, the poor, and he finds that they're the ones that are willing to come, and he opens his house. This is not I scratch your back, you scratch mine kind of hospitality. This is free, generous, saved by the grace of God, welcoming to people who need a place to rest. Hospitality, Jesus is teaching us, is a kind of attitude that you have. It is not a kind of economic exchange. 
It is an attitude that says, my home is a place where you can feel welcomed. It's a place where you can have safe haven if you need it. And again, this is not, this is not to say that we are to be abused in our hospitality. Please don't misunderstand me. It is to say there are certain conditions upon our hospitality, of course, just like Jesus' experience with the woman who was caught in adultery. We expect certain things, but our doors are wide open. What we don't expect is for them to look a certain way or dress a certain way or act a certain way or speak a certain language necessarily. One of the greatest benefits that, um, that my parents have given to my brothers and me is that they are the hosts of the German flight squadron in my hometown who all come to this Air Force base called Shepherd, which some of you guys have been to in your flight training. And they're the hosts. And so every year, all the German squadron come to their house. And over the years, they've become very near and dear to my parents' hearts, so much so that every time I go home, I, I, I have to think back a number of, of, uh, of, of holidays with my family to think about the fact that it was just our nuclear family because there are, there are Germans invading our home, and they just come to set up shop. It's wonderful. And there's one family in particular, the Bonds, who they've gone, they've gone on vacations with my extended family, and they're, they're like part of our family. They might as well be in our family pictures, but they've become treasured, and they treasure my parents as well. They've experienced a kind of holistic hospitality with the Bonds, and they've demonstrated that to them. And my brothers and I just stand in awe of the way that they've opened their house. They get a picture, a snapshot, to what many of you could also give testimony to, of kind of over a long period of time, Becoming a place that's hospitable for others. Others who don't even speak fluent English. You have to reflect. Not only do you recognize that it's individualistic. Yes, it is. It's more than that. It's also to be extended toward those who are excluded of the world. But you also have to reflect that hospitality has surprisingly deep theological roots for you and for me. Will read Leviticus chapter 19. It gives a kind of theological basis in the Old Testament for receiving strangers into your home. When a stranger sojourns you, uh, into your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. It's like he puts the seal right there on it. I am the Lord your God. The duty of hospitality for Israel was firmly rooted in who they were as a people. They were different than all the other pagan nations around them because they were the hospitable people of God. So as Oklahoma, frankly, begins to welcome more and more people from the world, it creates kind of a visceral reaction in us, doesn't it? Are you afraid of that? Or do you embrace that? What aspect of people um, coming onto your turf, as it will, threatens you? What part of that excites you? Where are you fearful about hospitable, about being hospitable? Where are you scared? Where are you excited? These are the things that community groups should be thinking and talking more about. The New Testament speaks of Gentile believers saying that remember, you, O Gentile, each of us, were at one time separated from Jesus Christ and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers, Same word of the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near. Christ, who sacrificed himself, 
did so so that you can no longer be strangers and aliens, but you can become fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. How do we grow in it? Yes, we recognize that we should demonstrate it individually. Yes, we should recognize it that we should corporately begin to welcome the excluded. But also theologically, you should reflect upon what has happened to you. Jesus welcoming you in. Like when I said this earlier, I I really meant it when I opened uh, the service before the call to worship. Like worship, worship is hospitality. It is the Lord inviting you in to partake of the divine nature of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is actually in worship, in the passing of peace and greeting each other, in the way that we try to be good hosts to people who are new, where we form our thinking about hospitality. And that's a responsibility of mine And it's a responsibility of yours to cultivate that culture of hospitality in our midst. We don't just look at our past, but we also look to our future. Jesus said in John, let your hearts not be troubled. In my Father's house are many rooms, and I go there so that I prepare a place for you. And I will come again, and I will take you to myself. For where I am, there you may be also. How about that for a new hospitality company? Where we are, you may be also. That'll sell. Jesus. In the future, he has opened a place for you. He is preparing it right now for you. This very moment, as you hear my voice, your Savior is preparing a place for you. Amazing hospitality. We don't just look back at where we've come from, but we look to the future for where we are going. Jesus, this great host, welcoming us. And also, not only to the past or to the future, but we look now, right? We see that you know, Jesus himself said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of God has nowhere to lay his head. That we now experience Jesus welcoming us to the Lord's table for crying out loud. This is what we call it. Jesus had no place to lay his head so that he could live a life that you could not live and die a death that you and I deserve to die so that there could be a place open for you in the house of God. When people come to my house, sometimes my children give up their rooms so that you can stay in their rooms, or family can stay in their rooms. Jesus did the same thing. Jesus said, yes, Father, I will leave. But Jesus didn't say, Father didn't say, Jesus, take the couch downstairs. The Father said to Jesus, get out of the house. And through the incarnation, Jesus left the house of heaven to come to us so that his bedroom could be open to us. And we get to sleep in his bed, as it were. The beauty of the gospel, past, where we have come from, and future, where we are going, and now Jesus, having given up his room, so to speak, to allow us to have access to his house, is seen best of all in the Lord's table in worship, where we come to his table, welcomed by the Savior, where he says to us, oh, my child, come in repentance and faith and be welcomed, for he is our good host. Amen? So what then, therefore, is required of us in Tulsa? If we should always be doing this, and we know that we're doing it when we're caring for the whole person, the whole man or the whole woman, not just episodically letting them in our house, if we recognize that, yes, it's individual, and yes, it's also corporate, 
that we should reflect on the theological aspects of hospitality and let that drive us to be the kind of philozenic people that we are called to be, to seek to show hospitality that the New Testament calls us to be, then what's required of us? I think several things are, are required of us. Hospitality entails bringing one another into our common life together, where we are to eat and play and pray but our mobility, Randy Frazee writes, and our schedules and the many other aspects of modern life are such that we cannot build common life without some major sacrifices. And here are some of the commitments that have to be made to develop common life. Randy Frazee offers a couple. Number one, community requires common participation. It requires common participation in the life of God in corporate worship. Where do you learn to be a better host? It's by constantly being the guest of your Savior at worship. And it's by raising your value of corporate worship to be here every week, to come. Because it is over time that the practices that we demonstrate together begin to shape and mold our actual behavior and our values. And hospitality is one of the chief aspects of Christian worship. It forms us in ways that we are not altogether prepared for. But over time, it makes us more hospitable people. So it requires common participation in the life of the church together in common worship. It requires availability. Frankly, you cannot be too hard to get. And some of us have to fight that. We protect ourselves in so many ways. But you have to become available if you're going to grow in hospitality. It requires a variety of activities with people together, eating together, recreating together, work, service, learning, counsel. It requires a level of spontaneity together, as well as structured time. This is why community groups, like we, we don't legislate what community groups always do. Most of them are going to follow the sermon, and I'm going to give you ways, and Scott and I are going to give you ways to continue the conversation from the sermon. But we're not going to legislate you so much so because we want you to be able to, to breathe and to have a kind of common life together. And so if some of you want to call an audible on a Sunday night and say, hey, we're going to go downtown to do this, well, then do it. Great. There has to be a level of spontaneity in any developing relationship and friendship and any developing practice. You have to allow there to be a little room to breathe requires spontaneity. It requires a common place. There has to be an identification of who that community is in order to practice it. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Bringing other people in to the family of God together. There has to be a kind of practical cost. You have to um, practically plan for it. John Piper talks about strategic hospitality. Hospitality should have a great deal of spontaneity to it, he says. How can I draw the most people into a deep experience of God's hospitality by the use of my money and things and home and church home? Who might need reinforcements just now in the battle against loneliness? What two or three people's complementary abilities might explode in a new ministry if they had one or two or three hours to brainstorm over dinner in my house? In Tulsa, hospitality takes on a, a unique consideration, doesn't it? Because many of us have physical homes, which is wonderful. The fact that many of us have homes 
is a wonderful tool for hospitality. And I know that most of your living rooms allow space for at least several people to feel very comfortable inside that living room, which is important to note because much of the world in larger cities don't live in homes. They live in very small apartments. And so they don't have kind of places they can invite people into. They have home um, home neighborhoods or home spheres, the coffee shop, the restaurant. They live their life around their home, whereas we tend to live our life in our home. But what an amazing tool it is to invite people into your home. For the most um, important things about suburban hospitality, you have to be able to at least uh, be open to inviting your neighbors into your home. Sometimes we live on streets with our neighbors and we don't know them for years. And the Lord has strategically placed these brothers and sisters on our block. Did he not providentially allow you to buy that house? Did he not, does he not set the habitations of your dwelling place? Then certainly he knows exactly who your neighbors are. And so a thing of cookies goes a very long way in welcoming people to the neighborhood who are new or to saying hello to a neighbor that you've lived next door to for many, many years. That perhaps this week is the week that you should dare to meet them. In Tulsa, the most basic acts of hospitality also inviting our friends and our colleagues and our, our network to come to Trinity, where we may not feel comfortable inviting them into our home, but we may feel comfortable inviting them to worship. So please invite them. Please bring them. We want to welcome them here. And if some of you don't feel comfortable welcoming them to Trinity for whatever reason, that's totally fine. Then your first step should be inviting them into your home or to your community group. These are the aspects of hospitality and the strategies we need to have in a suburban world like Tulsa. And I'm just trying to think very practically. What about, um, you know, a third aspect of suburban hospitality is, like, is eating together as often as possible, like being together. Some of you in, in college, uh, those of you who went to college know that some of the most, like, spiritually edifying times of your life when you had a small Bible study in your college dorm room and you just like live practically together. What happened? You had this incredible sense of community and that can develop here too. It just takes a longer period of time and a more regular accessibility and a regular exposure to one another. And as a church that's relatively spread out, this can potentially be an obstacle that calls some of us to say, ah, we can't really do that. But yes, we can. In small pockets, we can do it. And we can bring that culture with us as we come here to allow our church to become known, among other things, as a very hospitable church that welcomes those who did not feel welcomed anywhere else. Some of us need to pray about opening our own home to a community group. You have homes that are accessible. You, have a, you live in a neighborhood where a lot of people live around you, and you, frankly, should pray about leading a community group in your house. It's a great opportunity for you to begin to demonstrate the kind of Christian hospitality that Jesus, that Paul, that Peter, that the author of Hebrews calls us to do. But it's not just individual. There's also a kind of corporate suburban hospitality that we should have. And that involves us being involved in our community in a way that allows us to know where the outcasts are. To not just use Owasso because you have a larger lot and a larger house, but to go in to volunteer at the Pregnancy Resource Center. To go and to volunteer at Aruba Medical Clinic. To go extend yourself into the community at the Owasso Community Resource Center. 
to get involved, to be able to know corporately what our community groups can begin to do, what we as a church can begin to do to kind of practice a, a corporate hospitality. And the best, one of the best ways to do this is through our community groups. And if you want to know how you can better do that, that's why we have a diaconate to say to them, I would like to give money to this end. How do I do that? I'm not quite ready to give my time, but I can give my resources. And so the diaconate exists to be able to field those requests and to say, yes, we would love to direct you in this way. Our diaconate is to be an active diaconate, and it is. As we go to them and say, Lord, how do you help us lead? Or, diaconate, how do you help us lead in becoming a more hospitable church? Some of us, it may be serving on a, a, a volunteer team, one of the welcoming aspects of, of worship together. You can go to trinityawalso.com slash serve, and you could sign up to be a greeter or to bring the coffee to us to help serve us every week or to take the coffee back to the coffee shop after service or, there's a, or help Kim as a Trinity Kids host. There's a lot of different ways you can help serve here. When should we practice hospitality? It should be a continual practice that we are pursuing together. How do we know that we're doing it? When we are caring for the whole person as it was intended to mean in the ancient Near East. What, how do we grow in it? You reflect both theologically about what Jesus has done for you to bring you into a home you did not deserve and also to be compelled by love to go and to serve the world together. And what's required of us? Time, an effort, a little creativity perhaps, and just opening yourself up to meet those who are different from you. Christians are not xenophobic. They are philozenic. Amen? Can we be that together? How do we grow as a community? We practice hospitality in these ways. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to be a hospitable church not for the sake of saying that we are a hospitable church, but for the sake of the stranger, of the outcast, of the, for the sake of the many people in our neighborhoods who do not have legitimate communities, who are lonely and who are tired. And for those of us, Lord, here today who are experiencing that same loneliness and that they are tired, Father, would you strengthen them by, the, by coming to your table? Would you prepare them through repentance and faith in your finished work? Would you remind them that you too were cast out so that they might be brought in? You too, Lord, were stretched to the end so that we might be able to find rest. Oh, Father, would you nourish us and strengthen us, we pray, by your word, to be the people that you've called us to be and be the community that you so long for us to become and we can be. Help us to become who we are. Help us to seek to show hospitality. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.